All right, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Super excited about having Vinnie Lu on the podcast. Vinnie is co-founder and CEO at Bishop Fox. Uh, been in the game for, gosh, I want to say uh, 20 plus years, not necessarily to age us. Vinny, can you introduce yourself to the audience? What is What does the CEO at Bishop Fox do and what is Bishop yeah. Fox? Uh, probably starts uh, first with Bishop Fox. We're, uh, we're one of the largest offensive security testing firms in the world. Um, what that means is we spend all day, every day trying to find vulnerabilities in our customer systems. Um, help them understand what they need to do to remediate and kind of give them guidance around that. Really, our job is to help our clients find the vulnerabilities so they can fix them before the bad guys can take advantage of them. And that's what we've been doing for the past 17 years. Um, my role at Bishop Box as CEO now, but truly evolved over time. Of course, you know, started early on, had my hands uh, on the keyboard a lot more, doing that type of technical testing work, um, specialized in certain areas over the years. And then eventually, you know, kind of continued to where I am today, which is where I spent a lot of my time thinking about the future of offensive security, thinking about the strategy of the market, um, because I think it's a combination of the two that is really required in order to, to, to bring what we have available to the market in a way that can actually see the light of day. So I spent a huge amount of time doing that. All right, I want to get into it to what you what your view of the, what the future looks like, and you know whether you're an optimist or a pessimist <laughs> about, about where we where we're heading. But let's go back to the beginning, right? Because you uh, you did you did uh, tech in college. Yeah, I was a computer science. What did you study in college? I was a computer science engineering major right. in college. Right, and coming out of college, you uh, were recruited to the NSA. How much from that period of your time, one, you can talk about, and two, how much did that kind of set you up for understanding, connecting the micro to the macro and understanding what this really means? And were the early underpinnings of a company already in your brain? Give me a sense of when this switch flipped that, you know, college heading into the NSA as an mm-hmm. analyst and, and trying to figure this out. When did that happen for you? Okay, so I'll, I'll do a little bit of a clarification and kind of a rewind even further. I mean, I, I really got into it like a lot of people when I was pretty young, you know, 13, 14. Um, and I've been playing with computers growing up my entire life, but the security aspect of it was really kind of 13, 14. Um, and so slight correction is that I actually joined the NSA after I graduated from high school. So I was... I, Oh, really? Yeah, I remember I was like 17 and I wasn't a, I was a legal adult yet. So I had to get my parents to sign off on the paperwork for it because I was a little bit young for my for my grade. And um, and so I made uh, and, and, and so I so I'm on a, in a program that recruited specifically from talented you know high schoolers who had high school specialization kids. in um, uh, like foreign language, math, computer science and. I feel, I feel like there was like some other category, but, but, but let me, let me, let me, let me, let me point out a few other people. Uh, okay. I'm going to call this out. There's a few other people in the industry that were in the same program. So really? Chris Ang was an earlier version yeah, of that program. Cool. And I want to say, uh, David Tell from immunity is also in that program as well, but there was kind of like earlier generations. Now I think, I think Dave was, I, I'm, I'm confident that Chris was though. When you say you were th- when you say you were thinking and dabbling in security at the age of 13, 14, 15, there, there are some examples, uh, some stories of, 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 of breaking things or fixing things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what the most like people sometimes ask me what my first hack is, and it's like the most disappointing first hack. It's like the most it was it was uh, I, I want I think it was like a a Telnet or FTP login. And I think it was tech Telnet and it was literally like root with no password. Like it was I, I wish it could have been cooler. But it was just right there. That was like literally right. the first hack. And so I, you know, and, and obviously there were like a lot of other cool stuff that happened since then. But back back then, I mean, even earlier than that, even 13 or 14, like 13 or 14 was kind of like when I really started, like maybe 12, 13 was when I really started getting access to higher speed internet. But even like leading up to that, it was right. a huge amount of bulletin board systems, right? It was BBSs. It was downloading like like text files and trying to figure out like piecing these things together. I think for me, the hard part was I wasn't in a community that really a had had a lot of technology, much less the ability to even have other people who are specialized in security. Right. I grew up in, I grew up in Kentucky. So there just was not like a lot of people that were like had computers at home could play with it. So there was like 
20 bulletin board systems, right? Like roughly that I could dial into without incurring long distance charges. So those are the ones that I can actually get information from. And and every now and then, every now and then there, there would be BBSs or like 800 numbers, right? But you'd have to like get access. And I just didn't have, I didn't have access to some of those, you know, at all times. So the so the the high school out of high school NSA program coincided and went and with, ran alongside your your with school college. right they kind of they, they you were a full time employee they let you actually go to uh, go to school um, but your time when you're not at school you're basically working for them um, and so wow. uh, it was an interesting program um, that that I, to your to your earlier question which I think is important which is like how did that impact my my worldview. Right. What did you learn there at the NSA? Like what, 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 what were the early things there that, you know, informed your worldview that there is a, that one, that there's a career here yeah. and maybe the early first signs of there's a company here and there's a business here. It didn't teach me that there was a business, but it impacted the way that I realized like the importance of what we were doing. Like, like at a, at a, at a very, very, you know, impact. Oh, yeah. was clear. It, was, it was very obviously like, like you knew what you were doing was really important. And I think that was something that actually bled into, you know, after I left the agency, one of the things I did was, and I went, went to work straight in the industry. I worked at Ernst & Young. I worked at Honeywell before starting Bishop Fox. But even through all of that, I realized that what we were doing was really important. And I, and I never really thought about it as like, hey, is there a career here? It's very different today. People are like, oh, I want to I want to start a career in cybersecurity. Cybersecurity wasn't even what we called it back then. You remember, it was like, it was information right. security, right? It was InfoSec, yeah. And, and nobody knew what that meant. Like you couldn't go to a bar and be like, yeah, I'm in InfoSec. Now you can just literally go to a bar and be like, I'm in cyber. And they're like, oh, cybersecurity, you know? A lot of times I'd go and right, they'd be right, like, security, right. like, like stocks, securities, you know? And, and like, no. So I wouldn't even explain it, right? I'd just tell people I was in IT, but... But it wasn't the career. It was always it was always interesting. So it didn't really matter. I, I mean, I think that's the difference between the the crew back then and where the market is today. Not to take anything away from either one of those, but the people twenty years ago who were interested in it, it was a bucket of misfits. People that like found each other because they were interested in it, like career be damned, like people were coming in from all over. And I think that's a lot of the reason our industry today is still one where you can come in from anywhere with any background is because there was no prerequisite right. for that. There was no, you have to get this degree. Uh, on the flip side of that though, right, is it, this was just a, a loose collection of folks coming together and piecing this industry yeah. together. And for the, for the most part, building the technology and kind of uh, duct taping everything together in a way that leaves us with this tech debt and complexity and so on. Like a lot of, a lot of what, 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 what we were going through and seeing in the late nineties through to 2000, I just had Marty Resch on the mm-hmm. podcast talking about how things have changed and the kind of tech debt that's left today that's created this big, massive burgeoning cybersecurity yeah. industry. Uh, do you see, do you see remnants of that where there were, there, there are things you wish we did differently on the building side. I don't know that we could have done it differently. I don't think so. We were piecing it together. We was, there was no grand unified theory of like, hey, here's the security framework that we've got to build, and here's the building block. Like, you, you kind of have that today, but there's so many unsolved right. problems even today. You look back at what we were doing, and was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that, and then you'd have to come up with a solution for it, like. Oh, but what if I do this? And then they're like, I gotta, oh, we gotta solve that too. That's how security's evolved. Nobody had a plan of like, okay, first we're gonna tackle network security, then we're gonna do applications. And by the way, web apps are gonna be really weird, so you better get ready for this. And you don't think it's a big thing now, but cross site scripting, actually, everyone used to make fun of it. I did too. And now it's like, oh yeah, you know what? Client side code execution, like people are storing a lot of stuff and a lot of secrets on those clients. Like you actually have to be aware of it. Like there's so much that is just a reaction and it's a cat and mouse game. And it has always been a cat and mouse game. Yeah, we've got tech debt, but you know what? Like, I don't think there was a Yeah, but we'll never overcome that tech debt, right? We'll never overcome that tech debt and that complexity that's left us where we are. I guess you're a pessimist. 
<laughs> I want to get into whether the optimism, optimism, yeah. pessimism thing later on, because I have it down to my last question. But let's rewind to the early days of Stack and Do, because you mentioned piecing things yeah. together. Like you guys had to literally make up the methodology for hacking yeah. and make up these methodologies for what your what the scoping of a, of a yeah. project would look like, what the report would look like, and all of that stuff. Like a lot of it. Like where did you find? the mentors and the inspiration to figure that out? Or were you guys literally figuring it out for your, on your own? I, would, I mean, we, we, we built on the shoulders of the people who came before us, right? Like, I mean, I, I spent a little over a year with Ernst & Young's Advanced Security Center where we were doing a lot of that work. So there was a lot of professionalism that was kind of imbued in what we were doing for these Fortune 500 companies. And, and you know, there's like, I want to say some of the early uh, Y folks were like Stuart McClure, George Kurtz, right? They were like the generation before us. And so they had kind of laid the groundwork and we really expanded on it and kind of took it to the next level. They wound up with Foundstone, which eventually got bought by McAfee. You had a bunch of guys from At Stake, which is actually one of the reasons I left the agency was because every, every all of my peers wound up getting like Dave got hired by, um, look, don't even get me wrong. I wasn't even a peer of theirs. They were like so far above me. Don't like they still are like so much better than I am. But like the people, I say my right. contemporaries, perhaps the people who happen to be working in the same area as me, um, they all went over to at stake. Right. And so like those guys were doing it while I was finishing up school. And then a few years later, I started Bishop Fox stack and Lou as it was called back then. But yeah, a lot of like, how are you going to tackle this new technology that came out? Like web application testing was still pretty much in its in, like in its early early infancy. Tools were just coming out for doing dynamic scanning. People used to people used to try to do product comparisons between DAST and SAST, and it's like they're not the same guy. Like they're they find totally different classes of vulnerabilities. Like you know, but that was the early early days. Did you did you ever imagine? I, I was just when I was prepping for this interview, I went back and I saw a video of you doing a Blue Hat talk, maybe yeah. Blue Hat One or yeah. Blue Hat Two in the was, early yeah, two thousands. About yeah, I did two Blue Hat talks, but yeah, uh, yeah, and some web app thing where you were showing them how search boxes can expose certain things. It was like really, it felt it feels now looking back like rudimentary yeah. hacking. Can you paint a picture at the time about what the landscape looked like in the stack and loot days one and two? This was around the time of the birth of the industry because it wasn't only you guys. They had the, the, the IO Active out of Seattle. Microsoft had hired a bunch of these boutique penetration testing shops to help with Vista and to help with XP Service Pack yeah. 2. So now we're starting to see the emergence of this hack for hire business, this offensive security com uh, uh, computing oh. business. But but when, when you go back to those early blue hat days and you know web apps are starting to become a thing, could you ever imagine being he here? No, no. I, I, I mean, I think I learned really early on with the speed of which technology was moving and then the speed at which security was moving on top of that, which I think is a multiple higher. I, I, I would have never imagined it. I mean, like, like, like I said, it was like in the early days, we were all figuring out stuff for the first time. It was like, I remember when like, when, you know, when a guy at Blue Hat was presenting about printer drivers, right? And it's like, hey, you know what? These have access to the kernel. Like we gotta be really worried about drivers and making sure that these things are secure. And it's like there's been massive amounts of improvement, signing and all sorts of stuff that happens. We 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 didn't used to do that. We didn't used to do that, right? And and it's it's uh it's wild and it all seems super rudimentary, but somebody's gotta take those first few steps. Like I'll look back at some of the exploits that I wrote and I'm like, none of them would work anymore because of ASLR or some other type of like protection right. mechanism but like back in the day when we were writing overflows it was like okay well there's like your straight buffer overflow you've got your seh overflows you've got like you know like no mitigations no sandbox to jump out of none of that stuff it was yeah and and you had a big question i was like are they ever going to turn it on by default i mean you know you should but maybe they never will and we'll just have like a playground forever so you've been at what I would call like a, a pioneer in this pen test industry. You've watched this evolution of the pen test, you know, from what used to be this point in that time thing where you put three, three man hours or three people on a project for three weeks and we kind of write a report on the state of the security of that to a, a, a model that, you know, went beyond pen testing, ongoing assessments, yeah. web apps to mobile, bug bounty industry came in and kind of found a niche within this world and so on. So you've been watching the evolution of this space over yeah. the years. 
What would you say is the biggest advancement your industry has made? What is the, 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 the singular thing that's kicked the ball down the road in a significant way? I think it's actually happening right now. I think it's actually happening right now is, is what I would tell you. So where we're right now, you, you feel like we're right now at a transition point, at some sort of trans, transformational period in, in pen testing. So yeah. talk, walk, talk me through it. Walk me through where, you, where we are and where we're heading. Where we largely are, where most of the market is right now, is still in point-in-time penetration testing. And I would say about two years ago, you really started to see the beginnings of the shift around it. You know, and we, we started looking, I mean, because again, we've, we've been around for 17 years in, in the form of Bishop Fox. We, you know, a lot of our people have been doing pen testing even before then, but in our current form, we've been, we've been in business for 17 years. So we saw very early on when it was, what's your methodology? Okay, well, what are your IP addresses? Scan those IP addresses with a vulnerability scanner, follow up on those results, and then do a little bit of manual penetration testing on top of it. That has largely been unchanged for the past 15 years. And then on top of that, with, with a few modifications, because you're doing different technologies and you're doing different things. So like the attack approach is a little bit different, but it all boils down to, are you injecting data? Is there misconfiguration, right? Are you able to elicit some, you know, is there a missing patch as part of this thing? Is there a bad authentication or password, right? Or, or is there sensitive information leaks? Those are the only five ways that you're going to break into an organization or into an applicant. So right. It's just those five, just those five things. And so it's some variation of that, but but the methodology has pretty much been static. It's been the same. And so now you're seeing this expansion where it's 80% manual effort, and that has been going on. Now, we've reached a point, though, where the number of, a, of targets that have to be assessed to ensure security is reaching a point where, like, you cannot grow human talent fast enough to keep up with it, despite all of the advancements that we have. And, and, and the amount of information available now is just, like, loads more than we used to have. It went from like searching for a text file that you'd have to decipher and then like cross-reference to figure out what it is to having just like an explosion of information where you can just watch somebody like on a YouTube video or listen to a podcast like this right. and gather information about the industry. And, and what's happened in the last two years is a major shift. And I'd actually tell you that there's there's a few a few shifts. From a technology standpoint, we've actually gotten to the point where infrastructure and technology and tooling has allowed us to begin delivering uh, and, and begin discovering assets on our own, right? The attack surface management space has really kind of spun up in the last few years. And then the oper operationalization of that data to feed into more continuous testing and identification engines allow us to more accurately identify and quickly identify vulnerabilities, you know? And so you're seeing a lot more of that. Certainly the attackers are on it already. Right. The fact that every time there's a new CVE that's critical or high risk or a new proof of concept exploit that goes, the entire Internet's getting exploited for it. Right. You know, that's happening. You know, it's happening at scale. And what we're doing now in the industry, certainly at Bishop Fox, and I see a few other folks trying to trying to mimic and copy that is how do you provide continuous visibility of where your assets are? But on top of that. At a depth, not just like, oh, here's the IPs and ports, but at a depth and a richness that allows you to say, oh, also, here's all my all my technologies that are exposed and all the vulnerabilities that I might have. And that's kind of the next evolution is moving from this sort of let me let me go tell you what my assets are, go run a test once a year, maybe twice a year. But in between, I'm going to have no visibility. And we're actually starting to see that because when we do our assessments today, what we find is that. You know, like actually this happened like two weeks ago. We're in the middle of writing a report and our engine picked up a vulnerability the day before the report went out. And it was like, you know what? You had a new finding. You need to know about this, right? And so we can continually update our customer as to what's going on. Can we linger a little bit on the people people versus automation piece? You mentioned we're, we're right at that tipping point. And, and I think I heard it at 80-20 kind of, uh, distribution. What is the preferred perfect tipping point where automation takes over that helps us manage this this people crisis? Because you're in a people yeah. business. At the end of the yeah. day, it doesn't matter what the AI does and what the scanner does. A human still has to put some eyeballs on it and figure if it's exploitable or if you can get a trophy with it or whatever yeah. it is. What is that tipping point in okay. your mind? So, so it's 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 not so simple, right? I wish I could give you the the hey, it's like fifty percent, sixty percent. 
But yeah, but what is it in your mind that makes Bishop Fox like it's now a, a smooth, smoothly running enterprise where I don't have to worry about my HR campaigns to try to find people? Well, I think the big difference between what we're doing and what other people like we we've got a platform called Cosmos, and the difference is that we combine the all the all the advancements and the advantages of automation, but we marry it with expert operators on the receiving end. Right. And that's going to be a continuous problem for you. Not a continuous problem, but a continuous uh, a reality for you is that you still need to augment it with these top quality skills yes. in a market where in a market where it's becoming very, very competitive to find those people and you're just, they're just yeah, not available. Exactly. And that's why I'm trying to get a sense of in your mind as you strategically look at Bishop Fox over the long term, what is that? What is what has to be? The short version is, I think you've got to augment every single operator with an Iron Man suit. Every operator needs an Iron Man suit to be more effective, to be more intelligent, to have automation. Define an operator. Define an operator here, because that's a new word. So, um, you know, essentially for us, operator is a a, a tester, uh, a researcher. There's a lot of different names for what they do, but essentially they break into systems, right? They're right. And they're running Cosmos. They're they're the guys on 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 the platform doing the scans, yeah. running this continuous automated interface scanning thing, and they're surfacing findings to another group, or are they a part of like figuring they're, out? Findings they're part of the exploitation group, right? Like we essentially adopt okay. a lot of the same terminology that you would find in, you know, NSA and, and military and the people who I are see. actually performing the work of exploitation itself, because so much of our team background and history comes from that, especially from the Cosmos side of the house. What we've also done recently right. is we've actually started marrying in a lot of the, some of the, some of the strongest bug bounty researchers and bringing them into the fold to get a different perspective on it, right? So we get a lot of the bug bounty creativity that's out there. We're marrying it with the operational discipline and the rigor and just the strength of technical knowledge that we've got from NSA style, you know, delivery and, and service mechanisms. Right. So, uh, so, so, so that's essentially it, right? To answer your question in a little bit more detail, every vulnerability can be automated to a different degree. But the more and more you can automate each one, the less work it leaves, less grind work, grunt work that needs to be done. And it allows operators to spend their time not doing, you know, crappy, low value work, but to actually do the, the, the art, the creativity of the testing to think about, hey, how am I going to bypass this filter or how am I going to chain these vulnerabilities instead of, oh, I got to go rem- remember to run, you know, Hydra or run another NASA scan or do this. Like that's not valuable. But the but the real thing is like we have to pick up where those vulnerability scanners leave off with automation to automate the 80% of the work that's not being touched by any of the existing tooling. Because those those tools were built like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. They haven't changed fundamentally in the least. Where where do you stand on the the the, the hiring staff shortage, skills shortage in the industry? Because there's 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 a there's a variety of thoughts that we actually do have a skills shortage, and we we really need to ramp up training and ramp up attraction into yeah. the industry. And then there's another school of thought that we're not doing HR well, we're not doing hiring well, we're not doing recruiting well, we're not we're not find, looking in places where where are you? Because the people the people is a crucial part of like the 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 stability of Bishop Fox's like you're a people business at yeah. the end of the day. My, 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 my high-level commentary is I think the market actually is very reflective of where we are from a cybersecurity talent perspective. So my, my position is like, well, if we had just an abundance of people that were sitting around, but we just couldn't find them, that they're, that they're out there, like the market would go and find them because it'd be way less expensive to go do that than to see like... So you're a believer that there's a skill shortage. It's, I, I don't like... Where are these people that are saying that there's no shortage? Like, well, well, then you should start a business that if you clearly are aware of people who have skills, then you could you could make a lot of money by providing those skilled individuals to all of these people who are looking. Otherwise, salaries wouldn't be increasing at the rate that they were increasing. I mean, you have to be insane to think that, like, people want to, like, you know, just let people sit on the sidelines and not put them, you know, Give them, give them gainful employment. Uh, it's absurd. Fair enough. If we do have a skills shortage and there's this big giant competition for a handful of really, really talented people, 
and we have a massive skill shortage. Like, where do we go from here? Like, how how do we overcome this in a way where it's meaningful? Yeah. One, not only for your for your company or for specific companies, but for the industry at a, as a whole, where small, medium sized yeah. businesses have no chance of getting people in 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 house, and then you end up with a security tax on that burdens companies without resources, and then you have the rich and the haves and the have nots. Yeah. And we end up with where we are today with ram- ransomware everywhere and everyone's breached and everyone's infected. Like, how do we fix this? Well, um, I mean, I think, I think people with way deeper pocketbooks could certainly help. I think, I think a works program around it. I mean, like, like, like imagine if there was like a new deal for cybersecurity where you could actually just put people to work in cybersecurity, give them the training. So you think there's a role for government? Absolutely. Like the government's not doing like, you know, okay, well, you might have to edit this out later, but the government's not doing <laughs> anything for us otherwise, okay? They've been serving the same like True. 17 customers in the defense industrial base for the last 20 years, but for everyone else, you can go pound sand. So look, look, they, like, if you're going to do something, do something. Stop taking pictures with people at conferences and like pretending like you're going to do something useful. Look, I went to DC a couple months ago. I love it. All right. And I had dinner. I'm not editing any of this, by the way, go ahead. You had dinner with shit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Look, and I'll just, I'll just tell you, like, I don't spend a lot of time in DC. I don't, I don't know what goes on there. Like I can see, I, I, I just see what happens from a private sector. I spend a huge amount of time in the private sector. CISOs at, Right. Large to medium enterprises, pretty much like several hours every week talking to different CISOs at these types of organizations, understanding what's going on. Nobody's getting help, right? And unless you're like in a very handful of select industries that they've kind of got relationships with. And if you're Microsoft or Cisco, that's about it. Uh, so so um, where, where, where's I going to go with this? Um, oh, I'm, I'm having dinner. And I'm sitting down with a bunch of like people with like really fancy titles from the government, right? And they're having conversation and, and I'm sitting there listening and I'm like, I've been in this industry for 23 years. I've been in this industry for 23 years. I have no idea what you're talking about. You are using a completely <laughs> different vocabulary than me and you are using absolutely no connection to the problems that private industry CISOs are facing. Do I expect the government to step in and magically figure out how to engage? Like, I don't know. At this point, you ask me if I'm, I'm, I'm both an optimist and a pessimist, depends on what topic. But after like 20 years, I'm not expecting, I don't expect the government to come in and do anything for us. So you, you don't have any confidence in the executive order pushing multi-factor authentication, mandating multi-factor authentication, some of the efforts around like a must-patch vulnerability list, some of the executive orders around supply chain mandates and zero trust mandates. Do you think that yeah. helps in any way at all to filter down to rest of industry? Does you think, do you think all, all boats are float, will float from this? Point for Ryan. I do agree with you on that. I do think that's making a difference. I think, I think the right because at, I mean, there's some energy. The government is good at regulating and creating incentives or disincentives for certain performance. That is the one thing that they have. Uh, I should I should clarify that I think a lot of what I'm bitching about is really just the like the the the, the, the fake engagement. Um, but when the White yeah. House comes out with that stuff, people do pay attention. When the SEC and the FTC actually start going after people, like that actually turns heads, and I do agree. And it does affect private, private sector change Absolutely. as well. Yeah. It does push yeah. it down. I want to close on some good news. Congratulations on your recent round of funding. You just raised $75 million. I want to ask a little bit this question in a little roundabout way. It took you f- close to 14, 15 years to decide to go the VC route. You guys were a partnership yeah. just building this thing out, just growing the company significantly year over year. What went into the decision to go the VC route? Like why, why decide to go that route now? And talk a little bit about what has happened since the Series A to the point now where you raise 75 million in an environment where we're told it's tough to raise yeah. money. So talk to me a little bit about what you've done so far. I, I tell you the initial decision to raise money was so that we'd been in business 13 years. And in our, in our like 14th year, we were like, yeah, we, we want to, you know, 13, 14th year, we wanted to raise money. It was because... We were growing and doubling every two years, and we had reached a point where we realized we needed to really professionalize the business side of things, right? Because we all came from like hacking backgrounds, 
And so we could get it so only so far before we knew we needed to bring in some professionals. Um, and I think at that point we were probably like 120, 140 people when we, when we raised the funds. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second thing was we saw the writing on the wall that there was no way we could scale to meet the demands of the market without investing in this technology that we had been incubating internally. So we took that Series A funding to build the Cosmos platform, right? That's our Iron Man suit for hackers, essentially, that allows us to work with way more right. leverage and speed. And we said, one, can we build a professional version of this for our operators, for our hackers, our, our consultants, our testers, whatever you want to call them? Number two, will customers buy it? And number three, does it actually allow us to deliver with more leverage? And over the over the three years since we took the Series A, the answer to all three of those resoundingly was yes. And it gave us the confidence to say, you know what? Instead of this having, like this Iron Man suit is a real thing, right? It's like the one that was built in the cave, right? In the, in the first movie, right? right? And it's like, we can do better. There's another version of us that we want to build. And so that's really impetus for the second one. We realize the impact that we can make along with, and I'll link this back to the question you asked earlier, we are investing heavily in Bishop Fox Academy. We don't expect to show up. And this is this is right. a fundamental difference. What is Bishop Fox Academy? Just, just for the folks who've never heard about it, give me a little it, bit about it. It's, it's, it is a comprehensive training program for us to be able to identify really talented people who have the beginnings of a demonstrated skill, but like demonstrated talent more than anything else. It's externally facing to attract. It's, 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 it's a, it's a talent it, attraction. It's designed uh, to allow us to in, attract people to work at Bishop Fox and to grow their skill at any level, Trained. not just junior to senior, but even seniors expanding their skill sets because of how nuanced and sophisticated the, the offensive security market is today. And that's the difference. A lot of people are expecting, oh, I should be able to just show up and there should be talent available to me. It was like, that's not, that's not, you know, that's like foraging. You know, if somebody finds that berry bush before you do, you're shit out of luck. Like you got to farm, you got to build it. You want to, you want to have something long lasting and impactful. This is the reason to stop becoming hunter gatherers. Right. Like farming makes a lot more sense. Like that's where we're going. That's what we're building. We're investing not to like be a short term company. That's like, I mean, obviously we're 17 years old, but like we're in this for the long haul because we want to make a difference. I got a last question for you is something that I hear from CISOs a lot. I spend a lot of time talking to CISOs, not only on this podcast, but for articles I write and so on is continuous, continuous, uh, continuous assessment, this continuous penetration testing. What Cosmos does is inevitably the future. This is, this is the only way you can survive, but it's freaking expensive. It's a very, very pricey proposition. And it removes it from a hun- from um, the majority of businesses, whether you're medium to small enterprises. Is there is there a version so that those folks aren't left yeah. behind? That I mean, not from Bishop Fox, but just generally, is there an approach to continuous testing for yeah. the rest of I, us? I, I think it's actually one of the things that we we learned in the last three years, and it's something that we are creating as we develop more automation it becomes less expensive to produce like any, like any initial technology that's being developed that's kind of on the bleeding edge. And I think we're actually at the point now, um, and, and you'll see this actually from us, and, and you might even see it from other people, but I think you're going to start to see a more uh, affordable version that meets the needs of you know, mid-market commercial sector type right. companies that, that are subject to the same requirements and needs, but are in a very accessible price point um, because we've, we've had three years yeah. of development behind it. Like it's a lot more automation has been built. And I think that's the goal of this is not just to be another company serving only the enterprise, but to actually, you can make a massive right. impact to all of these other organizations as well. Thank you very much, Vinny. This was a lot of fun. Come back. Let's do it again. When we get some more, um, some more uh, 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 black hat presentations, uh, some of the other stuff that always keeps coming out of Bishop Fox, as you know, I'm a big fan and, it's been fun to watch from the sidelines how the, the company has grown and evolved. So congratulations on everything. Thanks, and thanks again. Appreciate it.